Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning. Uh, I have a couple of announcements before I get into the Word today. And those of you who are here Wednesday already know this, but I wanted to give you a heads up about three events that are coming up in the near future. One of them is the last Wednesday in February. We will be hosting a showing of Abby Johnson's testimony from last year's Pregnancy Resource Center banquet. I don't know how many of you were at that and heard her. Absolutely amazing. Just a powerful, powerful uh, ministry, powerful story, powerful testimony. I mean, people were really, really moved. And one couple, a local couple in Champaign-Urbana was so moved that they had taken it on as a personal mission to see that as many people in the area see this message as possible. And they're particularly targeting young people. And so we are not going to have a church service that night. We will be hosting this event that will be open to the public. There'll be, uh, we're believing for uh, hundreds of people here to come uh, to be here for that, but we will start at 6:30 because it's a little bit longer presentation than our church service normally takes. You plan on being here till about 8:30, but please do plan to be here for that on March 1st, uh, first Sunday in March. We are having Kevin and Annie Durant in here, morning and evening. This is not the timing that I would have chosen on my own because we've got a speaker coming a little bit later in March. I'll tell you about in just a second. Um, so if it had just been a matter, if it, if it hadn't been for uh, something in particular, I would have said, not a good time. Maybe we'll look down the road. I love Kevin and Annie. And they, but he called the day after the Wednesday that I preached about how we need to, to up our expectation for the miraculous. This is a church that believes in miracles. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, healings, right? We believe in the supernatural, and I want to see us walk in those things in the church and out there. And that whole message from a couple Wednesdays ago was let's actively and consciously start to speak and, and expect these things. And the next day he calls and says, we are seeing powerful, notable miracles in our services. Our whole focus when we come is to... Uh, uh, we were spending more time ministering and less time teaching, more time laying hands on the sick, uh, specifically. And and they he told me some uh, some very specific miracles that they've seen, including opening the eyes of the blind. Uh, and so I'm ex- I, I just I didn't tell him yes right away. I said I need to pray about it. Need to talk to a couple people. But the timing and everything he was saying was just getting me so charged up that I called him back the next day and said, Yeah, let's have you in. Uh, so they will be here. March 1st, uh, morning and evening, please plan to be here for both services. Sunday night is when they will do most of their praying for the sick. They'll pray for the sick on Sunday morning for people who can't make it Sunday night. But Sunday morning, he said, is sort of going to set the table for Sunday night. So do what you can to be here for that. All right? If you've got a sick friend, uh, be a good, good, good thing to invite them to this thing, I believe. So uh, then a few weeks down the road, March 20, what is it, 22nd, 23rd, that, that Sunday, that weekend, Pastor Bob Yandian will be here morning and evening. I don't know how many of you know Bob Yandian. He was an instructor at Rama when, uh, when mom and dad were students there. And he was a dean of instructors at Rama, and he was pastor of Grace Church in one of the early, uh, what passed for a mega church back then, Grace Fellowship was, uh, was a phenomenal church. And Bob Yandian is a phenomenal teacher. He is a teacher's teacher. He teaches ministers. And uh, I've told stories about him before, but I'll tell you, it, it, it's something that's long uh, been a desire of mine to introduce you to people who invested in me. Now, obviously, because of the time involved and because of the closeness, nobody invested more into me as a, as a man and a minister than my dad, all right? My pastor, Larry Millis, my father, Larry Millis, obviously, through teaching and, and just life, I learned more from him in the aggregate than I did from anybody. But as far as a pure teacher, uh, you know, I was at Rama and... Uh, 
I'm, I'm probably biased, but I think I was there in the golden years of the best teachers. We had Keith Moore as a teacher. We had Patsy Caminetti as a teacher. We had Brother Hagen. We had Doug Jones. We had Tony Cook. I mean, it's hard to find a stable of ministers uh, that are better than that, okay? And yet, uh, I, uh, without going into any reason why, uh, I, was, I made a list of churches I wanted to check out. I was going to Rhema Church. We didn't have to. You do now. Uh, but, you, but you didn't have to back then. They encouraged you to. Bottom line is, there were four or five really good churches in Tulsa that I was aware of. You had Willie George's Church on the Move, and I wanted to go to that because Willie George had been my youth pastor. You had Carlton Pearson before he went off the rails theologically at Higher Dimensions. You had Victory Christian Center, uh, and you had, uh, what was there? There was another one or two down there, the, and, and Grace. And I made a list of these churches, and I was, so I'm going to take the next four or five weeks, and I'm going to visit all these. And the first one I went to was Grace because it was the closest to me geographically, and I never went anywhere else. I walked into there, and, and everything about it was great. But what kept me coming back week after week was just sitting there under this anointed teaching. I would sit there, I can't tell you how many times, Sunday morning, Sunday night, on the rare Wednesday I could make it because of my work schedule. And I would sit there literally weeping just from the richness of the teaching. And, and, and it, it struck a chord in me. It was the teacher gift that God had put in me responding to this. But the man could say more in 20 minutes than most pastors could say in an hour and a half. And, and this is a distinction I always like to make. You have been in meetings, I'm sure, uh, if you have listened to teachers, where somebody lays out a really interesting teaching. Have you ever thought about this? And they might take a scripture from here, a scripture from there, and say, yeah, I'll give you an example. I won't say who said this, uh, but he's, uh, he, he's a brother to an even more famous minister, and he was preaching at our church in Indiana, and he said, do you know there's a verse in the New Testament that said women should keep silent in church? Let me tell you what that really means. And then he goes back to the Old Testament where it says, be still my soul. And he says the Hebrew word for soul is a feminine word. And so when it says women keep silent in church, it just means keep your mind quiet. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. It's not right. And it was so out of the, it was just one of these really, it, wow, you really have to think about that and pull that together. But it kind of left you scratching your head. Even if you did agree, it's kind of like, that's not what Bob Yandian did. He would lay out these teachings, and it might be a difficult passage, and he would just, these things would flow out of his mouth. And you're sitting there, I was anyway, stunned at what I'm hearing, and yet at the same time, my reaction was, of course, that's what it means. It's clear. It wasn't anything like, oh my goodness. I, you know, it, it, but the thing that would frustrate me at times, not frustrate me, but cause me to sink into despair, would be, I want to teach the word of God. And I can parrot what I'm hearing. I can remember and I can write down what you're teaching me. God, I want to be able to see these things on my own. And that was my heart's prayer. And I believe little by little over the years, God has allowed me to do that. And so I am just eager from a, from a very personal place to share this gift with you. The, the, the man who really, God, I believe, used to spark something in me all those years ago. And again, I encourage you to be here morning and evening. All right. Today, we are in message number four in our five-part series called Take a Good Look. And today, we are looking back. We spent a week looking up, talking about God. We spent a week looking down, talking about our enemy who's under our feet. And last week, we looked around at our brothers and our sisters and at our neighbors. Those are the two classes of people, right? Everybody you meet is either a brother or sister or a neighbor. It's not talking about Jews and, and Greeks. We're not talking about friends and enemies. Neighbors and the brethren. Today we look back. We're going to talk about the right way to treat our past. Now, think uh, if you were to type in biblical or Bible verses about the past, what does the Bible say about the past? What do you think the vast majority of returns are going to be on a search like that? What? Forgetting. Is that what you said? That's about right. The, the vast majority of them are about regret. 
leaving those things behind, not dwelling on the past. And, uh, you know, leave the past behind you. That kind of thing. But that's not all the Bible says about our past. We are not supposed to forget the past, but there is a right way of looking at it. I mean, common sense should tell you that everything we read in the Bible was written in the past. And we can't just look at that and say, well, every, you know, the, the most recent stuff written in the Bible is 2,000 years old and it's all in the past. Let's forget about that. And there's some people, without ever coming out and saying that, that's really how they live their Christian lives. And that's when you get into heresy, by the way. Uh, the narrative portions, which is a big chunk of the Bible, I'm talking about the part of the Bible that tells a story and, and you know, the biographies and the adventures and the history and everything, uh, is, it's about the past. And we're not supposed to forget these things and ignore these things. Once again, let's start with a kind of a big picture, then we'll draw the circle smaller as we go along. This is, uh, I believe, it's going to be a pretty short message. It's a pretty straightforward message for one thing, and yeah, the smell of food was driving me up a tree. So There's a psalm that I often turn to, and one we have recited together more than once, and it's Psalm 136. You can turn there if you want. Maybe you already know what it's about. Psalm 136, we'll read the first few verses. Uh, Psalm 136, beginning in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. Then there are verses remembering his acts of creation, going back to the beginning. And then the, uh, verse, from verses 10 to 22, these are... Uh, uh, remembering the specific acts of God he did on behalf of his people Israel, his intervening in history. And it's not just a general sense, thank you God for, being, uh, for intervening in history. It's calling forth specific events, remembering what he did. And then it wraps up like this in verse 23. Who remembered us in our lowly state for his mercy endures forever and rescued us from our enemies for his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven for his mercy endures forever. The whole point of this psalm is not to forget the past. To remember the past, but remember it right. Remember, especially when things look bleak, when things are tough, remember that, guess what? He hasn't failed us. He has always done these things. And how can we be assured that he always will? Because his mercy endures forever. It's interesting to me that the very next psalm, it's not interesting to me that it's 137, because I know 137 comes after 136, but it's a psalm from the captivity in Babylon. It's a short one, so let's just read it. Did we ever sing this together in here? We tried. Yeah, it didn't work very well, did it? By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there, were, for there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt you, Jerusalem, above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are, about, who are to be destroyed, happy the one who repays you as you have served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Praise the Lord. This is instructive because they are weeping. They're weeping because they remember their homeland. They are sick with grief. They miss it. They miss their freedom. And they're dwelling on it the way they are. What's it producing in them? A deep, strong desire for revenge. Now, this is a good psalm because it accurately reflects the heart of the people while they were captives in Babylon. But they were missing something. In all of this weeping, in all of this remembering, you know what they were forgetting? Or at least what they weren't including in this little song? How did they end up there in the first place? Where's the repentance? It's, oh, poor us. 
We used to be free in Jerusalem. Now we're captives in Babylon. And I know God has appointed destruction for Babylon. And I'm so happy for the people that get to bash your children against the rocks. That's not the heart of God right there, is it? But it's the heart of the people. Because it took a while. That's why they didn't just go to Babylon for a year or two. Seventy years, the captivity. Took a while for the message to sink in. You are here because you abandoned me, not because I abandoned you. Now, you remember that uh, it did eventually produce this deep repentance. But they did have some scripture. They did have some writings to draw on. Uh, Isaiah had prophesied about this very thing, really about this very moment. In Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah 43, we'll begin with verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power, They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. Uh, Let's just read on here for a second. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have bought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. This is so good. He's already promising a new thing. And he says, don't remember the things past. He's not saying forget about Jerusalem. He's saying, you can't go back. We can't undo this. We can't pretend this never happened. But I am going to do a new thing. It's going to be good for you. But we have a problem. You stopped bringing sacrifices to me. Maybe, and this is where I think this, is, uh, this can connect with us. We're not on the sacrifice system anymore. But how many of you have ever gone to God three days in a row to confess a sin? Maybe the same sin. And you're seeking forgiveness. Has anybody ever struggled with something where you just end up, and by the third time, by the fourth time, by the 50th time, by the 600th time, you think, God probably doesn't even hear this anymore. He must get weary of my confession. Anybody ever feel like that? God's saying, I'm never weary of the sacrifice. The sacrifices had to be made for sin. And they were thinking, God, what's the point? We're, we're offering these animals, but we keep sinning. It probably doesn't even like it anymore. And he says, you never wearied me with your sacrifices. You wearied me with your sin. And what's doubly bad is you stopped bringing the sacrifice. Now, best of all is confess your sin, repent, stop doing it. And the power of God is there to help us overcome these things. But don't ever stop confessing it if you're still doing it. When you say, even it's not the same thing. He will not be weary of our confession. Because what does it mean to confess? It means to agree with God that something is sin. Because once we take the step of, we fool ourselves into thinking, eh, God doesn't want to hear another confession. So we stop confessing. We stop going to God with it. Then we're just one more step closer to the idea of, it's not that big a deal anyway. It's probably not even sin. Anyway, when it comes to the past, our guilt and our sin, what's the final instruction there? What's the final exhortation? He is the one who blots it out. 
and he will remember it no more. We might not be able to forget what we've done, but we are commanded to act like we forget it in terms of not laboring under this sense of guilt, this unworthiness. We are supposed to look at the past and focus on what great things God has done and say, what? You've never failed me yet. There's a beautiful, beautiful illustration of this uh, in Genesis. It's the story of Jacob. And I don't know how long it's been since you spent some time back there. It's, it's, it's early in the year. Maybe some of you start the Bible every year to go through it. So, but you remember, you have to remember, this is very, very early in history. And Jacob didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a developed theology. One of the fascinating things about his story is the process that he goes through in getting to know more and more about God as he went along. And you probably remember that uh, at one point, Jacob, in cahoots with his mother, Rebekah, conspired to deceive Isaac, his father, into giving him the blessing that really was supposed to be given to Esau, his brother. So the whole family is part of this story. And he goes in there to visit his father, and his father is... uh, Uh, blind, and he says, who are you? Who is this? And he says, "Uh, I'm Esau, your son. And he's got some goat skin on his arm because Esau was extraordinarily hairy, I guess. And uh, anyway, he he fools his father into thinking he's given the blessing to Esau, takes the blessing from his father, and then he is urged by his mother to flee for his life because now Esau is going to kill him once he finds out. And so he, he bolts. He takes off to Haran. And on the way there, he camps out at a place called Bethel. And he had that dream. You remember that dream with the ladder? Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28. And we'll begin in verse 12. Then he dreamed. And behold, the ladder was set up on the earth. And its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He is reiterating the exact promise he gave Abraham. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. Verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob woke up from his sleep, awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, house of God, but the name of that city had been loose previously. Then Jacob made a vow. This is the part I want you to see. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, Then the Lord shall be my God. Then he goes to Haran. He marries. And marries and marries and marries. And after 20 years of working for an uncle who was even shiftier than he was, he leaves. Jacob leaves with all of his wives, his children, his livestock, and his possessions. He is rich. He has done very, very well but it's not been an easy life. But he's wealthy and he wants to go home, but Esau is out there somewhere. Now, if you take the time to read his story, and it's only a few chapters back in Genesis, you will see that Jacob, when he refers to God, refers to him as the God of Abraham and the fear of my father Isaac. It's always their God. He challenges uh, 
He challenges Laban. Laban comes out because he thinks that uh, he's stolen from him. Well, one of his, Rachel had actually, but he couldn't find anything. And so Jacob confronts him and said, the whole time I worked for you, for you, you never had to suffer any losses. I absorbed them myself, but I did well because the God of my father, or the God of, of Abraham and the, and the fear of my father Isaac. It's always the God of Isaac and Abraham. God of Isaac and Abraham. Then, before he, he meets, uh, he, even, even when he prays to God, he says that. Now, he goes, uh, before he meets Esau, and he's on his way, it's close, it's like the next day, he has another amazing encounter with God. This is the time he wrestles with the man all night. And this, I believe, was an angelic representation of the pre-incarnate Christ. This wasn't just some ordinary angel. They wrestled, and it's this bizarre event. But it says that the man did not prevail against Jacob until he touched him on the hip, and he said, let me go. It's almost daybreak, and Jacob said, no, I won't let you go till you bless me. In Genesis chapter 32... Genesis thirty-two twenty-six. Let's just, yeah, let's just read that. Uh, he said, let me go for the day breaks, but he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, anybody remember what Jacob means? Supplanter, usurper, deceiver. Last time he'd been asked that, he lied. What's your name? Uh, it's Esau. What's your name? Who are you? I'm Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. Then here's the next word. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. What does Israel mean? Prince of God. Your name shall no longer be be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. This is almost a picture of the born-again experience. He had, God had fulfilled his promise to Jacob the whole time he was in Haran, whole time he was working for his crooked uncle, whole time he was struggling. But he was still at heart Jacob. He was a deceiver. He was a supplanter. When he confessed that to God, That's when God said, I'm doing a new thing. You truly are what you said you are, but starting now, you're not. Your name is different. Now your name is Israel, Prince of God. And he had actually spoken to Jacob in another dream, telling him to go home. And in that dream, God said to him, I am the God of Bethel, where you made that vow to me. He reminds him of what this morning he woke up after that dream. Remember, he wakes up. There's a rock he'd been using as a pillow. He puts it there, pours oil on it, and says, if God brings me safely and successfully back to this place, he will be my God. And then God says, in this dream, he says, I'm the God who you made this vow to at Bethel. And then he changes his name. And then, anyway, there's this incredible tension leading up to the reunion between Jacob and Esau. And then, just like that, there's peace. He's home. He's blessed, he's prosperous, he's safe. And then in Genesis chapter 3, sorry, chapter 33, beginning in verse 18, it says this. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. God, the God of Israel. Now, when we think God of Israel, we think the God of Israel, the place. What's he saying? He's my God. God is my God. So, this pillar, he erected this, this altar there. 
He's looking back over, he looks back over 20 years, and it was a struggle, like I said. At times it was unpleasant, but right through it, God had fulfilled everything he promised. And he builds this altar. And in Joshua chapter 4, I don't know if you remember this, we're not going to look at it, but this was when they had finally, uh, after the 40 years and Moses' death, and now they're finally getting ready to cross into the land of promise. And the, they have to cross the Jordan. And the priests are carrying the ark, and as soon as they dip their foot in the water, it says all the water stopped pretty far upstream, but they could see it piling up. But they crossed on dry land, just as their fathers had coming through the Red Sea. And so they walk through the, the riverbed, and God instructs them through Joshua. He says, somebody from every tribe, get a rock from the riverbed, and you pile them on this side of the river. You just make a pile of these stones, and they need to stay there. That way, in the future, when future gener- generations see it, they'll say, what's that pile of stones for? And they'll be able to what? Look back and properly give them a testimony, give them an account of what God had done. This is the right way to look back. That's what these these milestones are important. So uh, that's another aspect of looking back is that, you know, we always quote, uh, they they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and loving not their lives even unto death. But it's the word of their testimony. You know, I'm commanded to preach the gospel. You are commanded to preach the gospel. And you can do that. You can know the gospel well enough to share the crucified Christ, the risen Christ, but you will never preach it with passion if you don't have a proper appreciation of what he has done for you, what he has delivered you from, a proper view of your past. And if you say, but you know what? I don't have much of a testimony because I wasn't all that bad before I got saved. Go back and read your Bible. Remember, that's the whole point of the law, is just to show, is to show us just how bad we all were without Jesus Christ. Testimonies. Testify. Say it. Share it. He has done great things, and we cannot afford to forget them. We can't afford it for our sake, and we can't afford it for the sake of others. We must remember, and we must rehearse his goodness in our lives. And that's tied also to remembering what he has commanded us to do. I remember on the first day of orientation at Ramah, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Fred Brothers was speaking to us. He was the dean of students. And he said, how many of you believe God, that you are here because God called you here? And of course, everybody raised their hands, probably everybody, the vast majority of us. And he said, I want you to take a moment right now and think and remember, think about and remember when you knew you were called. He says, I don't care if that came in a dream, if it came as a slow conviction as you prayed, if it came in a word of prophecy. Everybody, remember, think now. I need you to be convinced that you are here because God called you. And he gives us a moment. He says, now, how many of you are convinced you are here because God called you? All of our hands go up. He says, remember this. Because if you are here because you are obeying God, that is your anchor when things get tough. When your tuition money is due and you're not sure when it's going to come in, you remember, God, you're the one that called me here so I can trust you to supply. But that's important. When we're going through life, it's, man, the tough times are a lot easier to take if you know you're going through the tough time in obedience to God and not going through the tough time because of your defiance. God's still good. He remains faithful even when we're faithless. But it's awfully hard to stand in faith when you're not, when you're not walking in obedience. Okay? Now, one final thing I want to say about looking back, and it's, this is a little more of an immediate application for us. We had something in the army, and I'm assuming the uh, lesser branches of the military had this too. Uh, there are no lesser branches. Absolutely. <laughs> we had what were called uh, after-action reviews. After a big episode, after a small episode, every little thing, we would stop on the spot 
If it's an isolated drill, it might be doing something where just walking, you'd have uh, 15, 20 different classes a day on little things like how do you respond to a close ambush? How do you respond to a far ambush? How do you respond to uh, the sound of artillery? Uh, and you learn to recognize what's it sound like when it's coming right at you? What does it sound like when it's going over you? And you're, if you're the patrol leader, you're the one that has to tell that squad or that platoon what to do. Run for those trees. Hit the dirt. Shoot back. Whatever. How did you respond? How quickly did you respond? How effectively did you respond? And then when we were done with whatever drill it was, the leader calls everybody together. And we talked about every detail of that response. Who did right things? Who did wrong things? What went well? What didn't work? And why do we do that? So we can assign blame and make fun of people or pat somebody on the back? You know, commanders in war will do these battlefield assessments after the battle. They will walk through the battlefield looking and, and doing a really, they're like a, uh, these forensics guys. You know, it's like, they're like investigators on a crime scene. They are going through and they can reconstruct what happened in a battlefield by the position of the bodies. And it's not just there to, to do a body count, although that's part of it. But they'll reconstruct this. But why? The battle's over. You can't unmake any mistakes. You can't unkill the guys that are killed. But they are analyzing what worked and what didn't. Why? Because we learn that way, right? If we can identify what went right, we can repeat it. Maybe even improve it. If we can identify what went wrong, we can eliminate it. Or fix it. You know, uh, this is an example I think I've shared before. And this was uh, something, you know, when I learned this back in the 80s. And, and, and there's, there's a... It's kind of a sad old saying that, that says we're always training for the last war we fought. And, and so all the stuff we were really learning in the 80s was Vietnam era tactics. So we heard a lot of Vietnam stories. Not only that, the only combat veterans who were in the army at that time were uh, Vietnam veterans. And they had great stories and they had great lessons. And one of the things I heard this many times was in these battlefield assessments, there were two stunning things that were true almost all the way across the board throughout most of the war. One is when they would come uh, to, these, uh, to investigate these and, and uh, they would see these dead American soldiers and 85% of them had not fired their weapon. They're just face down in the dirt praying for everything to go away. They're not fighting. And there's a spiritual application there. I hope you can see it. We have great, the weapons of our warfare are powerful. They're strong. They're not carnal. But we have to use them. We have to employ them. It's not enough to have faith. We have to release our faith, right? The other one was this. And this, this was, was always the, the one that we had drilled into us as combat leaders, future combat leaders, was the overwhelming majority of battlefield deaths, at least in Vietnam, could have been avoided with six inches of dirt. If somebody, meaning if they had just dug a shallow trench to lie in during the firefight, they would have survived. And so, and, and the application for us was as soon as you stop. It doesn't matter if you are where you're going yet. If you stop, if you're on a, on a long movement and you stop for a break, nobody sits and rests until they dig a trench. Take you a couple minutes, get your entrenching tool out, scrape some dirt off, and lie down in it. Lie low. If you've got, you got a longer time, you can build an improved fighting position, and the deeper it is and the higher your bulwarks, the better your chances of fighting and surviving. When, when I was a platoon leader for, for, the, for most of my illustrious career as a National Guard officer, I was in charge of a tow missile platoon. And the thing that we had to train these guys to do was, when you're on movement, you know, we're driving these vehicles, first the old Jeeps and then the new Humvees. Uh, you're driving them through wooded areas, not roads. Every now and then, maybe get a trail, but mostly you're creeping through the woods. And you're trying to get to a point where you can exploit the maximum effective range of this weapon, which was several thousand meters. So what you want to do, ideally, is be maybe on the edge of a wood line looking out over an open field a high-speed armored avenue of approach. 
And, uh, but you'd have to go through some woods and then open spaces, woods, open spaces to get there. And what the, the drill was, you creep through the woods, and then as soon as you hit an open space, you hit the gas, and you bolt across that open space, and you zigzag as much as you can till you get into more cover. But as soon as they stopped, just like everybody else, you're not going to stay in these vehicles. You know, this is a crew-served weapon, and you've got to wait, and you might encounter infantry before you encounter a tank. So as soon as those vehicles stop, everybody gets out of the vehicle and digs a trench, digs a hole. And man, it took me forever, forever, forever to get those guys used to it because nobody wants to get out of the vehicle. Oh, we're here. Everybody just you know, opens up their meal, take a nap. No, 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 get out and dig a hole first. So all that to say, when we do these movements, we're doing a movement to contact, we're doing a... Uh, you know, fire and maneuver, all these things. Stop, if you're a good leader, stop every now and then and say, all right, what did we do wrong? Did so, was so-and-so where they were supposed to do? Well, did we follow noise discipline? Did we, did we do this? What could we have done better? Make these notes, implement them. We should do that with our lives. An after-action review. We can, it's the beginning of the year, it's good to look back over the last year and ask questions. Am, am, am I in a better place spiritually? than I was this time last year? Have I grown in knowledge? Am I more connected? Am I less connected to my church family? Is my prayer life richer? Am I getting my prayers answered? Is my faith effective? Do I feel like I have heard from God? And if you are not satisfied with the answers, analyze it. What can I do differently? What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. And there's so many people in this world, Christians included, that say, well, maybe this year will be better. We know what we got to do to make it better, don't we? What can I do right now to change these answers for next year? We used to do this thing... um, in campus life anyway, and I'm sure I did it with youth group too, we'd meet with small groups, and we'd say, look over the last week, and I just want you to rate your spiritual life on a scale of 1 to 10. I'm talking about your behavior. Did you behave like a Christian? Did you read your Bible? Did you pray? Have you felt close to God? Just in general, and then you'd sort of start picking it apart. Okay, if it's an 8, that's good. Better than a 6, but why isn't it a 10? There's always room for it. Let's just, let's just say, why is it an eight? I'm not, not, not being critical. And if somebody says it's a five, oh, man, what's the matter with you? Why, do you? why do you even bother? Nothing like that. What can we do? If you're honest enough to recognize it's not where it's supposed to be, is there something we could do to get it where it's supposed to be? What can I do right now to change those answers for next week? Can we do an after-action review at the end of the day? Can we take an honest look at any decisions we made? Did the decisions I made, the actions I took, the words I speak, did they draw me closer to God? Did they draw anybody else closer to God? Did they make me feel more distant from God? Did they push anybody else away from God? Did I misrepresent him today? Do I have godly goals? And if I do, what steps am I taking to get there? Did you sin today? Confess it. Here's an obscure little passage I want to read to you out of 1 John. That's in the New Testament, right? Anybody ever seen this? In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says this. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but only once a week. Yeah, that's a different Bible. That's not what it says, is it? Did you sin? Confess it. Receive your forgiveness, receive your cleansing, and that's what you leave in the past. When we look at the past, the things to dwell on are the good things God has done, not our sin, not our failure.
this is a great quote that I'm pretty sure I got from Patsy back in Raymond days, but I'm not sure. And I may have shared this before, but it's this. View failure as a moment. Too many people build a monument to their failure and pay homage to it for the rest of their lives and accept no responsibility for its construction. View failure as a moment. Too many people build a monument to their failure, pay homage to it for the rest of their lives, and accept no responsibility for its construction. Once it's in the past, leave it there. Probably the last word on the past is Paul's. In Philippians chapter 3, and praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day on the, uh, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, of which, is, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press forward, sorry, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying here, there's good and bad that he is just forgetting about and leaving behind. But when he talks about forgetting the good, he's not talking about the good things God has done. He's talking about his pedigree. Yeah, I came from good stock. I can argue the scriptures with the best of them. I was the most religious of a religious people. Followed every aspect of the law as far as I know. But it's worth nothing in terms of my salvation. So you know what? I'm going to count it as nothing. I'm not going to stand on that. But I'm also forgetting the bad. Those things which are behind, they will drag you down if you dwell on them. And if God himself says, I blot them out and I will remember them no more, then the only person keeping that memory alive is you. It can't possibly do you any good. Have you failed? Learn from it and move on. Do you have successes? Celebrate them and then move on. It is lazy and sad to rest on your laurels. It is pathetic to wallow in your failures. This is a new thing God is doing. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Stand up with me. It is just one of the many ways that Christianity is unique among the religions of the world. Many different systems will tell you about self-improvement. And there are many different systems will tell you here is how to make up for the bad things you've done. Only God says, I'll take those bad things you've done and I am going to put them on Jesus and he will pay the price for those things. You don't have to. You don't need to make anything up. You just need to die. And let me give you a new life. So the death, Jesus is going to do that. And if you're in Christ, then guess what? You're crucified with it. Like Paul said, my old man, my old self was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. And this is a good life. 
love what Angela shared earlier. It would absolutely have been enough if we just sang, if the only thing we saved, saying in that song is, I'm saved. If I believe in heaven and hell, and I believe they're eternal, then it is more than enough to save me from hell. But he didn't. He didn't stop there. He goes to great pains in his word to make it clear that if he did not withhold Jesus from us, he's not withholding any good thing from us. And it starts now. It's the life we were created for. It's the life that he invites us into. It's the life I'm inviting you into today. If you have a past that you can't begin to imagine how you can escape it, how you can atone for it, good news. You can just leave it in the past. It's already been atoned for. You want to come and receive that new life, that new thing that God is doing? Come up here. As soon as I'm done praying, I will pray with you. You give that old life to Jesus. He gives his new life to you. It's a great deal. It is is the best decision you will ever make. And if you haven't made it, make it today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for giving us the right kind of vision for the past. When we take a good look at the past, keep our eyes laser focused on you, your faithfulness, and what you have done. Help us to always be uh, mindful and thankful for what you have delivered us from, the ways you have used us, the ways you have blessed us. And help us, Lord, to just bury the failures and remember that you've paid the price for those as well. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the history that we have with you. And Father, I pray now if there's anybody in here laboring under that kind of guilt, under the strain of those bad memories of the past who aren't looking at it through the right lens, that you would free them of that through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. If they have not turned their life over to you, reach out you personally, Lord. Do what only you can do now. Holy Spirit, touch, convict, convince people of their need for salvation. Grant them the wisdom to respond to this call today. Grant them the boldness to come out and do it now. Grant them the humility to recognize their need for Christ. And save them, Lord, today in our presence. All the believers in the room, in Jesus' name said, Amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.